Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, lovely listeners, and you are in for a treat. Today, I wanted to continue reading through the chapters of Demonology and Devil Law, written in 1876 by Moncure Daniel Conway. What I've done this time is spliced a bit of my own research into this text. Any areas where I thought, this is a kind of vague reference, I've either deleted, if it would just confuse people, or added research too, for more clarity. Trust me on this, sometimes the author's references can be a little detractive to the content. My goal here though is to leave a lot of the book's content untouched, kept the old style of wording, and tweak only a little when it comes to sentence structure. In saying this, the views represented still belong to Moncure Daniel Conway, and are not my own in majority. So, thus far we've covered hunger, now we're moving on to fire demons. I'll be covering a number of topics today in this book, of which I believe will be a two-parter because it's massive, so let me give you a quick summary so you know what you're in for for this episode. Fire across multiple cultures and countries, for example Africa, India, Europe, the Persian Empire and more, history on Roman gods, the etymology of some key Roman gods, as well as Hindu gods such as Agni, Vistra, and their connection to fire, fire's evolution across cultures in the perspective of religious semantics, insights gleamed in 1876 about cultural worship of fire across the world, and the list goes on, there's a lot more jam-packed in this chapter. I hope I have intrigued you even a little bit. What if I mention you learn where the name Prometheus originates from? If you're like me, that was enough to get me deep diving. So, let's jump right on in. The topics covered today in the Fire Demons Mythology and Lore section is as follows. Heat, Demons of Fire, Agni, Asmodeus, Prometheus, Feast of Fire, Moloch, Tophet, Genie of the Lamp, Belfires, Halloween, The Chinese Fire God, Volcanic and Incendiary Demons, Mangayan Fire Demons, and Demons Fear of Water. Fire was of the old element of fiends. No doubt this was in part due to the fact that it also was a devouring element. Sacrifices were burnt, with the demons visibly consuming them. But the great flame demons represent chiefly the destructive and painful action of intense heat. They originate in regions of burning desert, of sunstroke and drought. Agni, the Hindu god of fire, was adored in Vedic hymns as the twin of Indra. Agni is considered the mouth of the gods and goddesses and the medium that conveys offering to them in Homa, alternatively called the votive ritual. He is conceptualized in ancient Hindu texts to exist at three levels, on earth as fire, in the atmosphere as lightning, and in the sky as the sun. This triple presence connects him as a messenger between God and the human beings in the Vedic thought. Here are some extracts of old Hindu mythology surrounding Agni. Thy appearance is far to behold, though bright-faced Agni, when like gold thou shinest at hand. Thy brightness comes like the lightning of heaven. Thou showest splendor like the splendor of the bright sun. From this extract alone, you can see it discussing Agni on earth as fire, the atmosphere as lightning, and the sun being in the sky. Now let's look at Agni's interaction with humankind. 
adorable and excellent Agni, emit the moving and graceful smoke. The flames of Agni are luminous, powerful, fearful, and not to be trusted. So here what's being discussed is the nature of Agni. Powerful, strong, but also dangerous. An element of chaos in Agni's description. I exalt the greatness of that shower of rain, whom men celebrate as the slayer of Ritra, the Agni, Vaiswanara, slayer of the stealer of water, the slaying of Ritra, the dragon monster. Agni's role in killing that monster was critical, and it was Indra that summoned Agni to help deal with the creature. Agni could only share in it as being the flame that darted with Indra's weapon, the disc of the sun. Agni art laid off with difficulty. Like the young of tortuously twining snakes, thou who art a customer of many forests, as a beast is of fodder. Referring to the unruliness and the difficulty to put away Agni once called upon, these extracts and metaphors all relate to the mythological tale referring to the slaying of Vitra. Vitra was accused of hoarding the waters and the rains, as a darser of stealing cows and as an anti-god of hiding the sun. And it was Agni's fire, the flame in Indra's disc, that slayed Vitra. And it was these metaphors of early days, verbal inspiration that led to Agni becoming a torturous serpent and a pillar of fire producing black smoke. Over time, the demon of fire, or the essence of fire, originally stemming from Agni has evolved. Much is said in Vedic hymns of the method of producing the sacred flame symbolizing Agni, namely the rubbing together of two sticks. He it is whom the two sticks have engendered, like a newborn babe. It is a curious coincidence that a similar phrase should describe the devil on two sticks, who has come by way of Persia into European romance, which leads us to Asmodeus. What do I mean by leading to Asmodeus? Well, Asmodeus is considered a lame demon, in that he needs crutches to walk. Those two sticks that was just mentioned refers to the devil on two sticks, or the limping devil, aka the lame devil. The crutches are a direct reference to Asmodeus, and the injury he suffered from falling from the sky after fighting with another devil, by the name of Pilladoc. But his lameness may be referable to the attenuated extremities suggested by spires of flame, tortuously twinning snakes, rather than to the myth that he broke his leg on his way to meet Solomon. Benfi identified Asmodeus as Zend, Ishma Deva, demon of lust. His goat feet and fire-coal eyes are described by Lesage. There is an interesting fact, though, regarding the Roman god Vulcan, the blacksmith of the gods. Just like Asmodeus, he too was injured by the demon Pilladoc. And just like Agni, Vulcan is the Roman essence of fire, volcanic eruption, and masterworks. But it is here that you can see fire as an element and demonic presence in other cultures in the representation of Hindu Agni, Roman Vulcan, and European Asmodeus. I would go as far to say that the lust from Asmodeus is the fiery passion of desire. It is not difficult to imagine how flame engendered by the rubbing of sticks might have attained personification as sensual passion, especially among Zoroastrians, 
the Zoroastrians would pull away from the loving and passion-oriented aspects of fire, and would treat fire in all associations as evil. It would harmonize well with the Persian tendency to diabolize Indian gods, that they should note the lustful character occasionally ascribed to Agni in the Vedas, and this is how they perceived Agni. Him alone, the ever-youthful Agni, men groom like a horse in the evening and at dawn. They bed him as a stranger in his couch, the light of Agni, the worshipped male, is lighted. The key word here, lighted, ignition, fire, and leads us to understand that Agni was the Brulefa of India, or love charmer, a patron of marriage, akin to another fire god. The fire god Hephaestus was the husband of Aphrodite, and yet again we see fire as a passion opposed to a demonic consulate or means to torture and harm. But that does change, over time and across cultures. But like hunger in our previous chapter, fire's destructive force eventually alters the perspective of gods and demons. But let's take a step back. The process of obtaining fire by friction is represented by a nobler class of myths than that referred to. In the Mahabharata, The gods and demons together churn the ocean for the nectar of immortality, and they use for their churning stick the mountain of Manthara. This word appears in Pramantha, which means a fire drill, but say it out loud. Pramantha. Pramantha. What does it sound like to you? Maybe some of you out there have gotten what I'm hinting at. From that comes the titan, Prometheus. He who stole fire from heaven and conferred on mankind a boon which rendered them so powerful that the jealousy and wrath of Zeus were excited. It's at this point we can see the slight shift here, where fire dons its destructive force. This fable is generally read in its highly rationalized and mystical form, and on this account belongs to another part of our general subject. But it may be remarked here that the titan, so terribly tortured by Zeus, could hardly have been regarded originally, as the friend of man. At the time when Zeus was a god, genuinely worshipped, Prometheus first stood forth as the supplanter of the malign devourer Saturn, also known as Kronos, the eater of his own children as they were born, and consequently really couldn't be seen as a real friend of man. But ultimately it was his theft of fire that led to him being chained to a rock and a vulture picking at his liver till the end of time. So fire's role in the world of demons and gods has a bigger part to play than most may realize. It was fire in some destructive force, which must have been then associated with Prometheus, and not that power by which later myths represented his animating with the divine spark, the man of clay. The Hindu myth of churning the ocean from the immortal drought, even if it be proved that the ocean is heaven and the drought lightning, does not help us much. The traditional association of Prometheus with the arts might almost lead one to imagine that the early use of fire by some primitive inventor had brought upon him the wrath of his mates, and that Zeus's thunderbolts represented an early strike against machinery. It is not quite certain that it may not have been through some euphemistic process though that fire worship arose in Persia. Not only does fire occupy a prominent place in the tortures inflicted in Persian mythology, namely Araman and the Parsi Inferno. But it was one of the weapons by which he attempted to destroy the heavenly child, Zoroaster. 
the evil magicians kindled a fire in the desert and threw the child on it. But his mother, Dogdo, found him sleeping tranquilly on the flames, which were as pleasant as a bath to him, and his face shining like Zohor and Mosteri, which translates to Jupiter and Mercury. The Zoroastrians also held that the earth would ultimately be destroyed by fire. Its metals and minerals ignited by a comet would form streams which all souls would have to pass through. They would be pleasant to the righteous, but terrible to the sinful, who, however, would come through purified into paradise, the last to arrive being Araman himself, Araman Law. Fire festivals still exist in India, where the ancient remnants of Agni divided up and distributed among many deities. At the popular annual festival in honor of Dharmaraja, called the Feast of Fire, the devotees walk barefoot over a glowing fire extending 40 feet. It lasts 18 days, during which time that those that make a vow to keep it must fast, abstain from women, lie on the bare ground, and walk on a brisk fire. The 18th day they assemble on the sound of instruments, their heads crowned with flowers, their bodies daubed with saffron, and follow the figures of Dharmaraja and Drapadi, his wife, in procession. When they come to the fire, they stir it to animate its activity, and take a little of the ashes with which they rub their foreheads, and when the gods have been carried three times around it, they walk over a hot fire, about forty feet. Some carry their children in their arms, and others lances, sabers, and standards. After the ceremony, the people press to collect the ashes to rub their forehead with, and obtain from devotees the flowers with which they were adorned, and which they carefully preserve. The passion of Agni reappears in Drapadi, purified by fire, for her five husbands, and especially her union with Dharmaraja, son of Yama, who is celebrated in this unorthodox passion feast. It has been so much the fashion for travellers, all adultery with biblical eyes, that we cannot feel certain with Sonorat that there was anything more significant in the carrying of children by the devotees than the supposition that what was good for the parent was equally beneficial to the child. But the identification of Moloch with an Ayan deity is not important. The Indian Feast of Fire and the Rites of Moloch are derived by a very simple mental process from the most obvious aspects of the sun, as the quickening and the consuming power in nature. The child offered to Moloch was offered to the god by whom he was generated, and as the most precious of all the fruits of the earth for which his genial aid was implored, and his destructive intensity deprecated. Moloch, a word that means king, was a name almost synonymous with human sacrifice. It was in all probability, at first, only a local personification of an ancient shrine stemming from Baal. The Midianite Baal accompanied the Israelites into the wilderness, and that worship was never thoroughly eradicated. In the Egyptian confession of faith, which the initiated took even into their graves, inscribed upon a scroll, not the name of God, but expressed only in a few words, Nuk Pu Nuk, I am he who I am. The flames of the burning ash, from which these same words come to Moses, were kindled from Baal, the sun. And we need not wonder that while the more enlightened chiefs of Israel preserved the higher ideas and symbols of the countries they abandoned, the ignorant would still cling to Apis, 
the golden calf, in which the Hebrews were carrying into the wilderness the tabernacle of their god Moloch, and through the passing of children through the fire to Moloch was, by the Mosaic law, made a capital crime. The superstition and the corresponding practice retained such strength that we find Solomon building a temple to Moloch on the mountain of Olives, and long after, Manasseh making his son pass through the fire in honour of the same God. It is certain from the denunciations of the prophets that the destruction of children in these flames was actual. From Jeremiah 14.6, as well as other sources, we know that the burnings took place in the valley of Tophet, or Hinnom, Gena. The idol of Moloch was made of brass, and its throne of brass. Its head was that of a calf, and wore a royal crown. Its stomach was a furnace, and when the children were placed in its arms, they were consumed by the fierce heat, their cries being drowned by the beating of drums, from which Toph, meaning a drum, the place was also called Tophet. In the fierce war waged against alien superstitions by Josea, he defiled Gena, filling it with odure and dead men's bones, to make it odious, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Moloch. And after that point, a fire was set up in Jerusalem to burn the remains. From this horrible Gena, with its perpetual fire, its loathsome worm, its cruelties, has been derived the picture of a never-ending hell prepared for the majority of human beings by one who sends the rain and sunshine alike on the evil and the good. Wu Chang, a man living in London, has written to a journal his surprise that our religious teachers should be seized with such concern for the victims of Turkish atrocities in Bulgaria, while they are so calm in view of the millions burning and destined to burn endlessly in the flames of hell. Our fellow brothers will learn a great deal from our missionaries, among other things, that the theological god of Christendom is still Moloch. The Ammonites, of whom Moloch was a special demon, appear to have gradually blended with the Arabians. These received from many sources their mixed superstitions, but among them were always prominent the planet gods and fire gods, whom their growing monotheism, to use the word still in a loose sense, transformed to a powerful angel and genie. The genie of Arabia are slaves of the lamp. They are evoked by burning tufts of hair. They ascend as clouds of smoke. Though as subordinate agents of the fire fiend, they may be consumed by flames. Yet those who so fight them are apt to suffer a like fate as in the case of the Lady of Beauty in the Arabian Nights Entertainments. Many stories of this kind preceded the declarations of the Old Testament that Jehovah breathes fire and brimstone, his breath kindling Tophet, and also the passages of Quran and of the New Testament describing Satan as a fiery fiend. Various superstitions connecting infernal powers with fire survive among the Jews of some remote districts of Europe. The Passover, for example, is kept a week by the Jewish inhabitant in the villages on the Vosges mountains and on the banks of the Rhine. The time of Omer is the interval between the Passover and Pentecost, the seven weeks elapsing from the departure from Egypt and the giving of the law, marked in former days by the offering of an Omar of barley daily at the temple. 
It is considered a fearful time, during which every Jew is particularly exposed to the evil influence of evil spirits. There is something dangerous and fatal in the air. Everyone should be on watch and not tempt the Shendim, demons, in any way. Have a strict eye upon your cattle, for the sorcerers will get into your stables, mount your cows and goats, bring disease upon them, and turn their milk sour. In the latter case, where you've caught yourself a warlock or a witch, try to lay your hand upon the suspected person, shut them up in a room with a basin of sour milk, and beat the milk with a hazel wand, pronouncing God's name three times. Whilst you're doing this, the sorcerer or sorceress will make great lamentations, for the blows are falling upon not the milk, but on them. Only stop when you see blue flames dancing on the surface of the milk, for then the charm is broken. If at nightfall a beggar comes to ask for a little charcoal to light his fire, be very careful not to give it, and do not let him go without drawing him three times by his coattail, and without losing time, throw some large handfuls of salt on the fire, in all of which we may trace traditions of parched wilderness and fiery serpents, as well as of Abraham's long warfare with the fire worshippers, until, according to the tradition, he was thrown into the very flames he refused to worship. It is probable that in all the popular superstitions which now connect devils and future punishment with fire, are blended both the apotheosis and degradation of demons, the first and most universal of deities being the sun, whose earthly representation is fire. The student of comparative mythology has to pick his way very carefully in tracing by any ethnological path that innumerable superstitions of European folklore in which fire worship is apparently reflected. The collection of facts and records contained in a work so accessible to all who care to pursue the subject renders it unnecessary that I should go into the curious facts to any great extent here. The uniformity of the traditions by which the midsummer fires of northern Europe have been called Baal fires or Bell fires warrant the belief that they are actually descended from the ancient rites of Baal, even apart from the notorious fact that they have so generally been accompanied by the superstition that it is a benefit to children to leap over or be passed through such fires that this practice still survives in and out of the way in such British empires, and appears from such communications as the following, taken from the times which are occasionally addressed as the London journals. Lerwick, Shetland, July 7, 1871. Sir, it may interest some of your readers to know that last night being St. John's Eve, I observed within a mile or so of this town seven bonfires blazing, in accordance with the immemorial custom of celebrating the Midsummer Solstice, these fires were kindled on various heights around the ancient hamlet of Sound, and the children leaped over them and passed through the fire to Moloch, just as their ancestors would have done a thousand years ago on the same heights. This persistent adherence to mystic rites in this scientific epoch seems to me worth taking note of. Now we explore Halloween, or as mentioned here in this text, Hallow-N. Hallow-N was celebrated at Balmoro Castle with unusual ceremony in the presence of Her Majesty, the Princess Beatrice, the ladies and gentlemen of the royal household, and a large gathering of the tenantry. 
The leading features of the celebration were a torchlight procession, the lighting of large bonfires, and the burning in effigy of witches and warlocks. Upwards of 150 torchbearers assembled in the castle as dark set in, and separated into two parties, one group proceeding to Invergelda, and the other remaining at Balmoral. The torches were lighted at a quarter before six o'clock, and both parties returned in procession to the front of Balmoral Castle, where refreshments were served to all, and dancing was engaged around a huge bonfire. Suddenly there appeared, from the rear of the castle, a grotesque apparition, representing a witch and a train of followers dressed as sprites, who danced and gesticulated in all fashions. Then followed a warlock of demonic shape, who was succeeded by another warlock drawing a car, on which was seated the figure of a witch, surrounded by other figures in the garb of demons. The unearthly visitors have marched several times around the burning pile. The principal figure was taken from the car and tossed into the flames amid the burning of blue lights and a display of crackers and fireworks. The health of Her Majesty the Queen was then pledged and drunk with Highland honours by the assembled hundreds. Dancing was then resumed and was carried on till a late hour at night. And this concludes part one of Fire Demonology. So today I think we've learned a lot. Here's what I've managed to glean regarding Fire's involvement as far as demon lore goes. From the information covered in this demonology text, Agni is one of the origins of Fire Demons, and from there cultures mix the ideology and other beliefs into their own, leading to demon lore growing across and into other religions. Fire as a symbol really didn't have such a bad rap initially, in that the first angle taken culturally regarding fire was for purification, passion, desire, and power. Destruction came later, and it was often at a godlike level. The word Pramantha relates to the Roman god Prometheus, and stems from the Mahabharata, and just for those wondering what that is, it is one of the two major Sanskrit epics of ancient India, and alongside this, the nature of Prometheus isn't as clear-cut as it appears. It wasn't until the tool of fire was used to attribute to his persona, which ultimately created the mythos of who Prometheus is seen as today. And that Persia had their own fire-worshipping practices, and stories of their own involving magicians and fireproof babies. Just brilliant. And fire festivals still exist in India, where devotees walk over flames barefoot and with weapons and standards to glean boons from their deities. The world is so rich with amazing cultures. So these were the tidbits that stood out to me. What was something in this episode that really stood out to you that you may have not known? I'd love to know it. In these research texts, I always find something amazingly unique and different. And because of that, this episode really shaped up to be more educational about demon lore with respect to culture than I ever thought to cover. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and there's plenty more to come in the realm of lore in this space. Did you know that Prometheus used a pigeon to steal a subterranean fire demon's secret for producing fire? I didn't. <laughs> yep, more absurdly awesome tidbits like this on the way. And I gotta say, that's why I love reading these texts. Just strange and unique stories and tales that sneak under the radar in most knowledge spheres. I think if I talk to my pals about pigeons stealing fire from demons in the underworld, well, you know, I don't think any of them would know what the hell I'm talking about. Now before I go, 
I just wanted to chat to you all about an idea that has been sent to me regarding a promotion opportunity for the podcast. You all know where I stand regarding ads. I'm not going to have you listen to a story and then halfway through it, try to sell you a mattress or health insurance or something ridiculous like that. And when I was approached by a group that promote podcasts like Sword and Scale to help promote their podcast, I decided to talk to you first. After discussing with them, I explained my stance on in-ad promotions. That's not going to change. They provided an alternative. The alternative being a separate two-minute promotion on the channel as a standalone episode. This way, I don't get in the way of you listening to my tales and stories, and if you want to support the show and hear about something unique from the Sword and Scale crew, listen to it. <laughs> Simple as that. I already have a full-time job, so the money I earn from this gig will go straight into paying for SoundCloud hosting, new mics, new gear, essentially everything and anything to do with the podcast that I can improve. The money will be used to deliver better content to all of you. And hell, who knows? If I can generate revenue, I can pay authors for their stories. That would be brilliant. Nothing better than being able to say thank you to the author that provides such great content. Perhaps a coffee or something small like that would be a great donation to start off with. I'll explore those ideas much later. So, if you have any objections, email me at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. If I don't get any negative hitbacks, I'll go ahead and give it a shot. And don't worry, this is just a once-off for now. And I'll be managing and watching this very, very closely, so don't expect to have 100 episodes that are just ads. Not gonna happen. I always place you listeners first. Every time. And in saying that, have a devilish night, my creepy ghouls and gas. Join me Friday for more demonology, and as always, till next time. time.